The CC Way, episode 14 with Marcus Koval. Life is a moment. My heart is shattered and has been replaced by a pain I could never have imagined. I didn't know emotions could cause physical pain. Ten days have, have passed since my son passed away. Yesterday was his funeral. It was as beautiful as a funeral could be. I was not looking forward to it. It almost scared me. Now all we have left are emotions and memories. Our memories and a hashtag. Hashtag remember Liam. It hurts and comforts at the same time. It hurts because I don't want to exist. I wish I could take back time and erase the hashtag. I wish I could erase any hashtag that begins with hashtag remember. Due to a senseless act that can be prevented. It gives comfort because that same hashtag is going to stand for changes. It's going to be remembered for what happened after the 3rd of September 2016. It's going to be synonymous with the social shift in the United States view on drinking before getting behind the steering wheel. How do I know that? Because this pain is my fuel. Because I'm obsessed with turning this into something positive. All I can see at present is hopelessness. This pain can only go away if I keep moving. This pain can only subside if I can find light in the darkness. This is the Sisu Way, a show about grit, character, life philosophy, fitness, leadership, service, and what it means to choose strength. My name is Scott McGee. I'm a family man, friend, thinker, guardian, and a peaceful warrior with an open mind and an unconquerable soul. And what is the Sisu Way? What is Sisu? It's a Finnish word that takes many words in English to describe. I mean, paragraphs and pages, but I paraphrase it as this. It's strength and determination in the face of adversity, persistence, hope, grit, unbeatable mindset full of courage, tenacity, resilience, willpower, triumph, and an unconquerable soul. This description, this, this definition, if you will, describes my guest today, Marcus Koval. Marcus is a martial arts coach, multiple gym owner, professional fighter, specializing in kickboxing, boxing, jiu-jitsu, and MMA. But as Viktor Frankl says, life is never made unbearable by circumstances, but only by lack of meaning and purpose. Everything can be taken from a man but one thing, the last of human freedoms. To choose one's attitude in any given set of circumstances. To choose one's own way. And Marcus chooses to fight. He is a father, he is a fighter, and he fights for life. And when a man knows where he is going, the whole world steps aside. Marcus, it's my deepest honor to sit here with you. Thank you. Thank you for your time and attention. And I opened the show with your own words. Yeah. Uh, it's from a blog post from 2016. Um, what went through your mind hearing those words again? You know, it's funny. For a second, I thought, wait, is that from, from the book? And uh, um, I wasn't sure. For a second, I thought, is it, did I write that? I recognize it. Or did my wife write it? Um, but uh, it's anytime when I uh, hear, because I know it's from around that time. And even the, the the book that I wrote, when I had to edit it, read through it, go through chapters, it's 
it's hard to explain but it brings back memories just like sometimes a smell or a song can do and obviously it's not attached to anything positive at all but um i i i i think i've always been driven i've always known my strength and i never had to to show it to anyone and and i was fine with that but um like you said victor franco said it the best and we can't choose what happens to us but we can choose how we respond to it and uh, i both me and my wife were determined very very early on to make sure that change became because of this that our son didn't just become statistics but because of our son there was a change and there will be a change um to go back uh, on this show i've 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 stressed reading books a lot Mm. that's been a thing to continue to read and grow and it's like a mental spiritual workouts right for yourself yeah but even more so is writing that's a big one and i've stressed that to write to write to write uh in the very first episode for dad i talked about how when it looked like my dad wasn't going to make it he had cancer when it finally was at the point where like all right he's not going to make it i asked him to write to his grandson and at this point my first son hadn't been born yet oh and so i asked him to write to his grandson and i said i would give it to him one day Mm. and one morning uh my mom calls me and apologizes not couldn't stop apologizing to me and she was apologizing because he didn't finish writing so a paragraph and a half in he ended up coughing up blood on the ipad he was writing on and died i'm sorry well that's terrible yeah, of course. I mean, it's it is part of life, and it is bad, right? I wish he would have wrote more, right? And that's kind of what I'm going at. It's kind of what is the purpose for this this podcast and getting information out and talking to people and writing because you can't wait. And like we were talking about prior to the show, memento mori, right? Remember that you will die, and and just like the title of your book, life is a moment. So you have to have this um, something to provide for your loved ones because you never know yeah that's very true and uh that is the reason why i wrote the book partially as well was for liam and you know the hashtag remember liam is to uh make sure that it's not forgotten and uh funny that you said that i actually got my dad as a christmas present a book to write a book so it's almost like a bunch of questions um for him to answer, which in itself would become his his story, because you know my my dad growing up um, never really spoke much about his upbringing, and you know came as an asylum seeker to Sweden, came with nothing, and uh, didn't have good memories from from Poland, where he's from originally. You know, post-war Poland, and the the Iron Curtain was closing from the Soviet Union, and they up and left to Sweden, and that's that's an interesting story that's an incredible story that needs to be written down or documented yeah exactly and uh that's why i got it to him him that and he never really did first it was too busy with work and you know then he um then he uh retired and not until i wrote the book did he really start writing in there and i think it kind of i hope inspired him to to write because he he realized you know he he has a, a a very 
inspiring story as well you know he came from nothing and built what he he did really well for himself but it was him you know uh he he did that and uh i'm proud of it i'm proud of of the heritage and i want my children to to realize where they came from not just from him but from my grandmother his mother you know who took her children to a country that she had only seen uh on a map and didn't know anything about it except that it was cold and she wrote a lot actually a lot of her work is at the uh, uh museum of tolerance in washington because my granddad was catholic polish but she was from a jewish background and her whole family were, were wiped out in auschwitz mm. um so she had a very good you know well not good but a very uh, interesting and inspiring story too and um you know i i never wrote myself i wrote articles in the mma world and and, and so on but i never wrote i only started writing I started writing four days. What became the book? I started writing four days after the accident, but I started writing for myself just to find an outlet because the the pain of of, of losing a loved one, but especially the pain of losing a child, is a pain that I wouldn't wish on my worst enemy. And uh, it's, you know, you almost, you, you feel like you're going crazy because you, you need to find a way to 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 get that pain out of you. And I, I looked at it as almost like a cloud, a dark cloud, and you have to go through it. You you can wait and you can take, you know, take it in, in in portions and go in and come back out again. But you cannot go around it and you can't wait in front of it. You have to get through it. And, you know, I, I met a lot of parents and especially a lot of fathers that years down the line were still very angry, still very bitter. And uh, I, I, I refused to be that person. I feel sorry for them. And... Um, I figured, you know, what the three reasons I wrote the book. One was for myself, just to find that outlet. Two was to honor my son Liam, and and three, I think that it can really help people dealing with their grief because as humans, we will at all at some point go through grief. Maybe not as traumatic as we did, but it will inevitably be part of life because whether it's a parent or a sibling or or a pet, even. Um, we, we will go through it. And as a man, a lot of times, you know, speaking about emotions and what we go through, it's, it's, it's not something that we learn in school. And speaking about emotions as a man, a lot of times it's looked at up on as weakness and, and it's not, it's, it's part of life. So that's why it, it ultimately became a book. That, that particular stuff you just talked about is vulnerability strength is actually part of the taglines of this show. Oh, really? Yeah, that's cool. It's um, and it's part one of the messages I like to send out, and why I like having people like you on. Um, back to back to the the writing, and I want to talk about the event a little bit. But the the writing, when you get, sometimes people can get into this cognitive state and just write from like their soul, right? Where the point where like you don't even remember. Yeah, and that's obviously what happened in that blog. Yeah, because. And sometimes it's forced by a traumatic experience and where you just kind of, it's not, it's not you writing coaching skills or talking about lessons you've learned and how to rotate the hips on a roundhouse kick. You know, it's just like, like, it's almost like you've scraped, a ro scraped away your external like skin and muscles and tissues and your soul came out and just dumped itself on into a blog yeah. or onto, um, you know, your, your laptop and, you know, through the, through the fingers and it, even just sending that soulful message into tapping on a electronic board. The whole thing is weird. You know, it's kind of like this, the, how the, how the message is 
translated and received by other people. In the back of the day, it was like it was written, you know, in feather and then dipping in the ink. Um, so I don't know, I'm kind of excited about the the technology that we have at this point in time when we are alive. Stuff like this. Like we can talk into these microphones and some magical waves go and they can reach people in Sweden yeah. tomorrow. You know, like it's interesting to me. But being being vulnerable and, and writing is super, super um, important and definitely helps people get through. Um, I did the same thing with, with my dad and then with my um, second born as well. And it launched a blog and kind of, it actually what started that poster over there, the CC Way poster. Um, but I want to talk about that after um, uh, just really brief kind of tell our listeners what happened. Um, so on the 3rd of September 2016, um, I'd trained and taught some classes, went upstairs, I'm going to take an, a quick nap before I was going to take my son Liam. It was 15 months to go to the Hermosa Fair to hang out with some of the guys on the team, some of my friends. And uh, I I'd been, I went to sleep a little bit later than usual, so I hadn't slept many hours. I said, let me just take a quick nap before I go down. My wife was doing uh, studying for a final, and her sister, who was living with us at the time, uh, she's 16 now, she was 15 at the time, um, she went to pick up food for us. And she took Liam uh, with her. And uh, in when she was crossing a pedestrian crossing in Hawthorne, um, she did everything right. This video footage I haven't seen, I never want to see. But I'm glad that it exists because um, it shows that she did everything right. She presses the button. There's three lanes, two cars and two lanes stop. Uh, at first, she pulls back the, the stroller. And then when she gets out in the road, the third car in the third lane uh, blows straight through the, the pedestrian crossing and uh, rendered my sister-in-law unconscious with a broken leg. Both bone pipes were off, uh, broken. And uh, my my son, was his heart was still beating and stopped for a while. And then um, they got the heart beating again. Uh, I was asleep. I woke up from what I thought was the sirens um, or the alarm at the gym downstairs. And uh, I told Michelle, I said, hey, I think the alarm's gone off at the gym. And she said, no, it's police. They've been driving by here. I said, it might be because of the alarm. She said, no, it's also ambulances and fire. Um, and right away, I got this feeling in my stomach. I said, where's Liam? And she said, uh, my sister took him for a walk to go pick up food. I walked across that pedestrian crossing late last night, by the way, for uh, the first time in in a long time. And uh, uh, I went to the place where she was on her way to, to get food. And I um, went to the hospital. And that, that emotional roller coaster from running out in the street because my wife went to look for her sister and Liam because she didn't pick up her phone. And she knew where she was going to pick up the food. And a neighbor came to the stair, the staircase in, into the apartment complex. And uh, she was uh, standing there. My dog started barking. So I walked out and I see her standing there crying. And she said, your baby, your baby. Um, so I ran out. I ran down the street to, to the crossing. And I saw my son stroller in two pieces. 
and just looking at the stroller, I just thought, there's no way, there's no way he's made that. And then a police officer told me that he's he had a heartbeat and he had a pulse. So, you know, for a second we think, okay, so he's going to make it, it's going to be okay. And then coming into the hospital, they tell me he's got a broken, uh, broken leg, broken ribs, uh, punctured lung, spleen and, and i'm like just from being in the fighting world i'm like that's that's okay it's gonna be okay it's gonna survive that and then they did a cat scan and realized there was a lot of blood on his brain and at the time i didn't know that you can actually be declared dead in two ways through the heart which is the most common way but you can also be declared brain dead but in order to be declared brain dead you have to do a bunch of tests and you do the test and then you gotta wait 12 hours and then two doctors have to be present in order to declare someone brain dead and those 12 hours is the worst torture i've ever gone through in my life and um you know once it was declared brain dead uh, you know a lot of people were reaching out saying don't stop fighting don't give up you know get uh, you know uh, people have made it but they and it came from a good place but you know we all have heard of, of stories you know miracle stories of people waking up from comas but he wasn't in a coma he was declared dead and uh, then deciding to donate our son's organs because the way he passed away, you know, his organs were still uh, fine. So we decided to donate our son's organs. And because of that, we had to stay in the hospital for another two, three days um, because they keep him on life support. And, you know, that was torturing itself just to be next to him. And he didn't look, huh? you know, he had a few scrapes here and there, but it looked like he was asleep. And to be there, and at the time, you know, I think I came, you know, the seven stages of grief and and acceptance and 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 uh, the shock, and I I came to accept it much earlier than my wife that he was no longer there. But my wife wouldn't. She she kept thinking that there was going to be a miracle, was going to come back, and she's a very intelligent and rational woman usually. But you know, emotional pain is is different. It takes away rationale and and. Um, to have to f physically force my wife out of that room, uh, that in itself was the hardest moment in my life. How did you walk? How did you sleep? How did you eat? I didn't eat. Um, we didn't sleep for the first 24 hours. Then someone gave us uh, some calming pills. And uh, uh, I, I, my, my wife slept even less than I did. We didn't eat. Um, I walked, but I had to take her with me. I had to physically grab her and take her with me and put her in a wheelchair to wheel her out. So, she, no, she couldn't walk. And uh, it's, you know, on the day, so he was, declared, he was declared dead on the 4th of September, exactly a year before, a uh, picture circle, uh, circle around the world of the three-year-old boy, Alan, the Syrian boy who had drowned, showing the you know the 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 victims of war in Syria that were trying to escape Syria and i remember looking at that picture on the 4th of September 2015 and thinking what is going through his dad's mind and trying to put myself in in his shoes and because first of all the, the the brain doesn't allow you to actually do it and i wasn't even close to to know what it felt like and uh, it's it feels like life stops because what you love more than life itself has been taken from you and how how you're going to go on but 
while we were still in the hospital, um, I I decided that we were going to find our way back to happiness. And I didn't, to be honest, at the time, I didn't think my wife was going to make it. I thought she was going to end up in a mental hospital and she was never going to be able to be happy again. But communication and talking to each other and being very honest with each other um, and decided while we were still in the hospital that we were going to open a non-profit. We are going to make change because of my son. And that's, you know, people ask if I was angry and I, I wasn't I wasn't angry. I was angry when I came into the hospital. I went up to one of the police officers and I said, who do I have to kill? And uh, that's not who I am as a person, uh, but that's how I felt. And I automatically thought that, you know, it was going to, because the person had tried to fled the scene as well. And I thought, you know, it's a young, maybe criminal guy, um, gangbanger maybe. It was a 72-year-old woman who drove the car drunk at 3.30 in the afternoon. And as soon as she told me that, it just kind of, it just left me with a meaningless, meaningless why. And my anger wasn't, it wasn't fury. It was almost like a cold, calculated anger where I, I didn't care about her. I would have been able to forgive her. I would have been able to hug her one day and say, I forgive you. But an anger with society that it's so accepted in, in, in the United States to drink and drive. I'm from a country where we have zero tolerance. Sweden, you know, I, I wasn't an angel growing up and I wasn't surrounded by angels, that's for sure. But you just, you don't get behind the wheel. It's looked down upon, it's frowned upon. Just like you look at rape or, or pe pedophiles, you know, it's looked down upon even among criminals. And drunk driving, the same thing. You just don't get behind the wheel and drink and drive because it's, it's you know, you want to do something to affect yourself. You want to do something that affects your environment, you know. But when it, it when it affects innocent people, then uh, it's just an embarrassment. And so, coming to the U.S. early on, you know, I used to go out a lot, and I remember seeing people, you know, stagger out of clubs and getting behind the wheel, and it's just not something that you see in Sweden. And we have point zero two blood alcohol content. That's the legal blood alcohol content, and in America, it's point zero eight. I didn't know that at the time. I've learned a lot in the year and a half and I've educated myself a lot to be able to have a, a, yeah. a serious debate with the lobbyists and politicians who are saying, no, no, 8.08 is fine. Um, and, uh, you know, I didn't know at the time that, it, that someone gets killed in this country every 53 minutes because of drunk driving. That's equivalent of a jumbo jet crashing every single week. And uh, there's a lot of things we can't change. There's a lot of things that are different from Sweden to the US when it comes to gun control and so on. But there's a counter argument. And whether I agree with it or not, I have to respect it. But when it comes to, when it comes to drunk driving, there are no counter arguments. There's no reasons to why people should have to or be allowed to get behind the wheel after they've been drinking. Did uh, by the way, anger is one of the stages of grief. Yeah. And that came on pretty quick, right? And that's... It did, but it's it's so strange. You know, I see it much more in my wife than I experienced it myself. You know, there's seven stages, and they don't they're not clear cut. You know, they don't happen one after the other. Yep. It's a mixture. It's almost like being in a in a laundry machine, and it's you just you know the emotions that you go through from hopelessness to to anger. But I, I never really was very angry, and I came to acceptance, which is the last stage, very early on. Um, doesn't mean I didn't deal with depression and, and it was the first time in my life that I dealt with depression and I didn't know um, 
at first I didn't realize that's what it was. You know, not wanting to get out of bed in the morning, not seeing purpose with life. Um, and, you know, from being a coach and having private clients and um, having people that couldn't find the motivation, I could never relate to it. I could, I could sympathize, but I could never empathize. And for the first time in my life, I was able to to realize what they were dealing with. And it's how it's made me grow as a human. Um, but I actually did the last episode I did by myself mm -hmm. was on grief. Really? And the stages of grief. Yeah. It's and, and Kubler Ross's, uh, work. Have you, um, cause once we get through, I definitely, I want to talk about that, the, the fight now, mm -hmm. but have you, as far as, um, grief, have you, you ever read the thing about uh, the waves and keep swimming? That's yeah. The ca right? Yeah. It's exactly how you feel. All right. And the 100 feet waves and how they come crashing down. And it's like you're just barely coming up for, for, for a breath before you right, get you're on a ship, down again. right? Yeah. All right. So that, I'm not going to go over it right now. So those guys, if you, if you missed um, episode 13 uh, on grief, I actually go through Kubler-Ross's work, but also I read that on that, that episode, so I'm not going to do it now. Mm. So go back and check that out. If you hadn't, that oh. was in, it's, it's fantastic, right? As far as not just dealing with um, the loss of a loved one, but the loss of a loved idea. Yeah. It could be a loss of a job or a loss, a breakup, you know, whatever it could be. Um, check it out. If you just want to look it up, if you look at Reddit, uh, if you look at Reddit or just type in G Snow. Um, my friend just died, you know, check that out. Cause it might help you find a way to make sense of dealing with grief. Oh, um, so I want to say that moment you were a fighter, right? We always go through these, these hats in life, yeah. right? And the most important hat that uh, we can wear is dad. Yeah. Before anything. Right. And, and I think a lot of people, and this is no, like no, no jab to people that don't have kids, but it's like, the, like you said earlier, you don't know until, you know, until you have like a, a, a child that you were taking care of. And it doesn't mean necessarily biological. It could be adoptive kid and you're yeah. taking care of, cause they're, they become like a, uh, your soul child. Right. Yeah. But when that happens, you, there's a, something happens to you as a, as a human and your purpose in the world changes. Yeah. Hopefully you're doing that. If you're having kids and that, that's not happening, then something else is going on. But wearing that hat, um, is, is life altering. 100%. And, and then at this time, um, to point out to our listeners, it was also your only child at that time. Yeah. Um, firstborn son. Um, a couple of things, and I know we briefly talked about it, but I don't know if you're, if you really know um, the, at least the background and my perspective on it, um, at that time, so my son, my second son was born one month after Liam in June at the same hospital. Oh, really? Yeah, St. John's St. Hospital. St. John's, yeah. And so I was kind of like, you know, following along. I've always been like a fan of you from a distance through the law enforcement training and Krav Maga and everything and a lot of our mutual friends. And I always kind of admired like the, you know, the, the man in the arena in you, Thank right? You. And that's the, like the, the poem that I showed you earlier. And 
and then seeing that and a little backstory on that on my on my son Connor. Um, around twenty weeks in, we found out. I'm gonna I'm paraphrase this, but he he had something in his blood that mom didn't have. In fact, mom had an antibody for it. So mom's immune system was attacking him, his red blood cells, and his ability to create red blood cells when he was in utero. Hmm. And to the point where like his hemoglobin was at like a two, and we thought he was we already we thought he was dead one day when he was at the hospital, and just to get the the ultrasound on him, and then we heard a heartbeat, and I was like, okay, um, at least we have that. But his head was enlarged; he had fluid between his scalp and his skull. His his heart was two thirds the size of his chest. Uh-huh. Severely anemic. Blood was like water, according to the uh, doctor. Um, but through intrauterine blood transfusions that we had to do every two weeks, we were able to keep him alive. Amazing. And to keep going. So it was like, you know, it was like driving on one wheel and dragging the car. Like we, it was like, it was a miracle that he made it. Yeah. And not only that, but it was a miracle that I thought he, you know, he, he should have been blind. He should have been deaf. There should have been something going on with him. And I'm still knock on wood, you know, I'm, I don't I'm Still up in the air on what's going to go on, but he's he's okay now. Really, that's amazing. So he made it through all this stuff, and so uh, for me, especially that, and then our sons being like the same age and from the same hospital, when I when I saw what had happened, I had this like weird turmoil within myself because it's like here's this beautiful, healthy child that was taking, and then I have my son who like cheated death, like he he shouldn't have. If if nature was nature and we didn't have this, if we didn't live in L.A. and have the doctor we had at you know, in L.A., there's he wouldn't have been alive. Right. So I had this like weird thing, you know, this like life and death thing going on within within myself, and it was almost like I don't say uh, I don't know what the right word is, not regret, almost like guilt. Yeah, life guilt a little bit mm. that that happened to you and I have this. Um, and then I saw a picture of, um, Liam's froggy in the street. Yeah. And that like, it's like one of those images for me and I'm like, I'm just a guy disconnected from your family, but it's, it's stuck with me and I'll never forget it. And, uh, it affected me so much. Um, you know, I didn't personally know you, but I was at that service and I, I had to pay my respects in some way. Thank you. Um, and then at, it was there that I ended up getting the, the little blue ribbon. Hmm. And I sent you that picture because that little blue ribbon, the Remember uh, Liam, is... Uh, I have two things up in my locker at work, and that's one of them. And so every day that I put on my uniform, I see it. It's right there. As soon as my uniform goes on, I see that, Remember Liam. That's and amazing. it's attached to a patch that I got years ago, and it's written in Latin, and it says... Um, defending the defenseless or helping the helpless depending on how you want to and so it's like a recalibration for me to like try and do the right thing you know while being a first responder in law enforcement and dealing with duis um having compassion for parents and so every day you know liam is motivating me thank you and he's motivating me to be a, a better dad to my kids especially especially to connor that's amazing so that's it there's a little bit of a, a background um 
at least with with me and uh, my relationship with your story you know i've had a lot of uh fathers reach out and say that you know um that's that's the inspiration and and someone someone said you know you're a hero and i said i'm not a hero a hero runs into burning building to save someone because they want to um i i wish nothing more than i could have it undone um and like you said you know becoming a father it was great and I'm, i've done a lot in my life that I'm, i'm proud of and feel like i've accomplished a lot but becoming a father was by far you know the biggest and uh, thing in the most the proudest moment of my life and that green frog was the first thing i saw when i ran up next to the the stroller my wife picked it in up right before we jumped into the police car to to go to the hospital and uh, that's why the, that green frog became the logo of the nonprofit as well because liam didn't spend a single day without his green frog he he slept with it every single day and we had just been in sweden the month before and we were out for a walk in a little town with my parents and this this big church there and, and we i me and michelle had gone to see something and my parents were walking liam and we came back and he didn't have the frog and he had dropped it somewhere and i said we need to find that frog because i don't know how we're going to put him to sleep without a frog um and uh I ran around the church. I found it on the floor, luckily, and uh, we still have it. You know, it's a home next to to his own, and uh, uh, it's it still smells of him. It's uh, it's the symbol for for this fight. That's beautiful. I'm really glad that you guys recovered that. Mm. Um, you talk about being a hero, right, and running into a burning burning building. But when I was racking my brain and, and doing some reading and stuff, I, I wrote down, I, I wish I remember why I wrote this down, but I wrote this down here and it said something stuck out to me. Uh, and it said, what, what was the, what's the greatest courage? And I wrote down in here that it's the courage to suffer. Mm. That is what is courage. So you, let's just say a guy running into a burning building, that, that guy's going to get hurt. Yeah. He's going to breathe in smoke could cause cancer, could kill him in 10 years. Yeah. But he's having that courage to suffer and move forward in order to help others. And not only to help others, but help himself, right? Because yeah. there's a drive within him that can't be stopped. And people always wonder, how do you guys do what you do? I'm like, if you don't know, it's kind of hard to understand, yeah. right? And yeah. I'm assuming it's the same thing with fighting. Yeah. It's something in you that, that has to be fed is what you do. Yeah, especially with fighting, a lot of times, you know, people are saying, you know, you're crazy, how can you do this, how can you do that? And uh, just like a soldier comes back from Afghanistan who's seen his friends blown up and comes back with PTSD and, and feels the urge to go back again, um, you know, it's, it's, it's very hard to explain for someone who doesn't get it. Either you get it or you don't. And uh, that, that fighter mentality, you know, it's looking at grief, it's... Uh, to see me and my wife's grieving patterns and how different they were and you know both close friends and my family you know they were concerned that me and Michelle weren't going to be able to stay together and it's very common I think something like 70% of couples go go apart and then it's really really sad because you loved each other enough to create life together and because that life that you created is now gone you can no longer stay together. And I think the biggest problem is, is understanding and respecting each other's grieving patterns because it's so subjective, it's so individual. And, um, you know, 
we went in we went to, to, to we were in therapy together and at first i said i don't want to go to 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 therapy and not because i don't respect it i think psychology is an, an amazing um subject in in general but i just know myself i know how to deal with things i know how to get through things but i'm really glad i went because i learned a lot i learned that you know how grieving patterns are different you know in my wife's case she had a lot of survivor's guilt and it's nothing she could have done different you know she was she was studying and, and the therapist said it the best she said what were you doing she said i was studying for a final why were you taking a final to get an education why were you getting an education to provide better a better life for your for your child and um you know from a rational standpoint it doesn't make sense she shouldn't feel guilt there's only one person's fault and it was the woman that drove that car um and you know a sister i get it because you know i'm sure and still till today you know she still deals with survivor's guilt and ptsd and so on and the thinking could i have done something different if and 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 if only if i could have had those type of thoughts and those type of questions become toxic and that's why it's so important to get through that and i never did i never dealt with it and the therapist asked me she said do you ever deal with those thoughts and i said I, they they pop up in my head but no i refuse to go down that road because one it doesn't lead to anything two i can't go back in time even though it's nothing i wish more than i can go back that going back in time and stopping them from going on that walk but i can't and um with with grief and and again my wife being a very rational person in general and her feeling that guilt um it, i learned that it's really important to to accept it to recognize that it's there and not you know dismiss it because it's part of her grieving uh, and for me you know from being a fighter and i didn't know the part of the brain that handles pain whether it's physical or emotional it's the same part of the brain and that's probably why i could absorb it and keep moving forward faster than she could but at the same time my grieving pattern was much more of a roller coaster because my whole life in training the harder you work the better you get so i would go 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 but then i would crash and and you know it was almost like running with the, with a rubber band attached to my midsection and the faster i'd run the faster i'd fly back again whereas my wife's grieving pattern was much more uh, is a steadier line and um um, you know, she we're very different as people. She's very artsy. She paints. She writes poems. You know, she should have written the book because she's a much better writer than I am. Um, she's a yoga instructor, dancer. So uh, it was uh, very, very different. But to be able to communicate, and we said that very early on, like I said, and 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 to be able to communicate our feelings is so important to be able to go through. Yep, I think um, I definitely want to point that out, and this is like a. Uh, a collateral benefit to this episode is to really, really encourage people to surrender, yeah, to be vulnerable, to yeah. get help. Because I want uh, a couple things. I want to say, um, currently, um, I am participating in therapy, mm. and I think that's important. I don't know. People hopefully don't put me up on some sort of pedestal because I have a podcast or I write on Instagram some cool stuff. But I, I recognize that I can be helped. And so I think that's important. And, and Marcus can probably kick everyone's ass that's listening here. <laughs> and then here you are being vulnerable and getting help. So being open to it, it isn't, it's not like an admission of weakness. No. You know, it's not like, and if it is, cool. Like, recognize it. That's a strength. Yeah. 
That's a strength. I th- being able to look at that and admit your, to yourself or admit to others is such a huge strength. It, I think it's more of a strength than trying to be incredibly super stoic and hide it from yourself. 100%. And if it's not going and talking to somebody, then, then write or talk to your wife or boyfriend or girlfriend or, or talk to your parents. Um, you know, additionally, one of the greatest freedoms is, is, and I think you'll probably agree with me here, but the greatest freedom is the freedom to choose our attitude. Yeah, 100%. Right. And, uh, you know, you look at, I think ego is one of the biggest enemies to humanity. And it's so funny, even with, with, you know, you look at any sport, but as a fighter, right, you have a coach and your coach, what do they do? The whole training session, they're criticizing you. They're telling you what you're doing wrong so that you can improve in those areas. And, you know, it's amazing to see how psychology has, has become more and more acceptable and, um, you know, performance psychology and understanding, you know, that it's so true. Some people say 90% of fighting is mental. I don't know if it's that high of a number because you do need to be in shape and know your, <laughs> know your stuff. But at the same time, it is amazing to see how some fighters who are, we call them gym champions. They're amazing in training and they should be champions, but they just crumble under pressure. And then the other way around, you see some guys are not technically that gifted and they do really well in fights because they just have that mindset. But, you know, you see CEOs having therapists and and call them whatever you want to call them, but ultimately what they are uh, are life coaches. And to be able to to say, okay, I'm struggling in this area. How can I improve? And that's what we should do as humans and as a society as well uh, is to say, you know, and, and that's one of the biggest things I've, um, I've, I've struggled with when it comes to this fight against drunk driving is people first and foremost saying, well, you don't know because you're not American. Well, first and, for, first and foremost, I am. I am a citizen. Uh, and, and, and two, I, I do have more of a perspective than most because I lived in several different countries and every country, just like every human, has its strength and it has its weaknesses. And America is the greatest country in the world in many aspects. That's why I live here. But to not recognize weaknesses, that's a problem. To just go on saying we're the best you know, if you're a champion, uh, you're constantly being chased by those who are not. And if you're not looking to improve, you won't be a champion for a very long time. I, uh, I just saw a thing, man. It said, uh, if you stop moving, you rot. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> you know, and we got to keep, keep adjusting and keep, keep improving. Um, where are you at with that right now? I mean, where are we at as far as let me let me rephrase this because I know uh, we were going to record last week. We went to Sacramento to 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 talk to the governor's office, right, about lowering the blood alcohol content. Yeah, and the Department of Traffic Safety. Um, besides lowering the law, I mean, I'm trying to find like what what good tactics are there to talk people out of it. I know Uber and Lyft, and that that's it's it's probably helping, but it's hard to measure the DUIs that don't happen. And it's actually hard to measure the actual amount of DUIs. Yeah, and that's a big problem because they say on average people drive drunk 80 times before they get caught. And in this country, one of my, one of the things that make me angry is, you know, over the past year and a half, I've learned so much about so many different topics. I've learned a lot about myself. I've learned a lot about grief, grief and depression. I've learned about... Um, 
you know, drunk driving, how big of a problem it is. I've learned about organ donation. You know, we, we again, all donated our, our son's organ, and I didn't know at the time that 94% of the U.S. population are willing to be organ donors, yet only 54% of the population actually are organ donors, and that every single day, 22 people die waiting for an organ. You couldn't fill Madison Square Garden with the amount of people that are waiting for an organ. Um, I And with the the drunk driving there's three areas that we work with when it comes to liam's life foundation and one is to increase the amount of organ donors um and uh, when it comes to the drunk driving side there's three areas it's lowering the blood alcohol content and uh, changing the social attitude towards drunk driving and those are the two biggest um problems uh, the social attitude is a big problem and you know again back to to what we've learned i've learned how flawed the political system is i've learned how flawed the the legal system is you know the woman paid bail and never served a day in jail until she was finally she finally surrendered to uh, and uh, took a plea um and went to jail every single time we went to court she walked into court and left court as a free woman and I can tell you the thoughts that were going through my head. And, and again, like I said, I could have forgiven her, but up until the first day in court when she stood up and said not guilty, even though there were witnesses, even though there was video footage, and it was just a way <laughs> the district attorney told us it's a, that's a game that they're playing, postponing, postponing. And I'm like, this, this isn't a game. And part of me would look at her in court and think, you know, from, from training and from being in, mili- in the military, just looking at it and go, okay, there's the closest law enforcement officer. I will make it over there and I know I can end her life before they will be able to pull me off her. And the other part of me are looking at this 72-year-old woman who could be, uh, or probably is a grandmother, um, and almost feel sorry for her. Um, and that emotional turmoil within is very, very difficult to, to, to explain. Um, but because of DUI lawyers in, in this country, who, in my opinion, are the scum of the earth, and I, if someone listens to this, you know, I, I completely understand for the need for, for lawyers. Even the worst and the most horrible of crimes in a democratic, free country, you should have the right to be represented to make sure that the court case is handled correctly and fairly. But when you have lawyers who specifically seek out loopholes in the law to make sure that people that have committed crimes get off that crime, that to me isn't, you know, you're no longer serving the people that the way you're supposed to, but now you're just in it for the money. Yeah, it's uh, DUIs, the, the way it's handled from the law enforcement side and the arrest side and the documentation and the evidence collection, it's so tedious and very detailed. Yeah. And then you go to like these DMV hearings and it's like, like it's so much, it's so much easier to arrest somebody for burglary, for domestic violence for or for stealing a car you know for for getting in a fight but the dui that's the difficult especially when it comes that's like that is like the last great misdemeanor you know it's like it's super hard and those you're absolutely right they can find that you know they forgot to initial something or the officer you know messed one line up in the whole entire report and that's what they get off on and it's it's very frustrating and I, I've you know, I've looked at the procedures for DUI and in the United States it's it's really frustrating for law enforcement and you know, like you said, a lot of paperwork and, and a very 
ungrateful job because like you said a lot of times they will get off or even if they are sentenced it's a slap on the wrist and um you know with the problem with um with duis if, if you look at most crimes it's a certain group of society to cho who choose that route like you said burglary or if you're a drug dealer or if you're a gangbanger but when it comes to duis you get all walks of lives you get politicians even mm -hmm. law enforcement officers Absolutely. judges doctors um lawyers and it's it's not looked upon as a crime uh in, in that manner but yeah, it takes more lives in this country than guns. It kills more youth than anything else in this country. And, you know, someone joins our team every 53 minutes when they kill. Well, not them, but their family. And it's very frustrating to me, the apathy of people. And just from watching the shooting in Florida a while ago, and, and, and this is something that we recognize with the drunk driving as well, is people saying they should do something. Someone needs to do something. And until we change the they and someone to you and me and I, I'm going to do something. Nothing will change. And again, being from Sweden, looking at changes in law, it's a very simple process in Sweden to change the law. If it makes sense, obviously, you've got to look at the pros and the cons. And um, in this case, you know, we're trying to lower the blood alcohol content because we're trying to burn the candles from both ends. A lot of times you change the law and the population will follow. But also if you change the social attitude, and that's where I struggle, where in Sweden it's an embarrassment to have a DUI on your record. Mm -hmm. You know, people lose friends and, and jobs even because they have a DUI. But when it comes to, to the US, you know, people openly speak about it. You know, oh, I've got two DUIs, three DUIs. My, my friend drove drunk and this happened. And they're okay with it. And, and, and it's not okay. Again, if you, want, if you want to drink yourself to death, that's your choice. You know, you're going to hurt people along the way, your family and friends, but that's your choice. But when you risk innocent people's lives, it's no longer your responsibility. And driving is, is not a right, right? It's a privilege. Mm -hmm. Well, if you broke that privilege by doing something that we know by statistics, by facts, causes deaths to innocent people, well, why wouldn't we change it? And to have these lobbyists who are standing up now and saying, no, 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 it won't make a difference. So we have a report from, from Dr. Toch who's wrote a report from the Department of Transportation, the Federal uh, Department of Transportation, on why it needs to be lowered. And he was on a radio show. And a woman who's a lobbyist who is saying, uh, no, we don't need to lower it. Um, now you're attacking social drinkers and um, you are criminalizing drinking. We're not at all. Our fight is not with the alcohol industry. Do I know what alcohol can do to people? From it's a reason why there's more fights at two a.m. than there is at eight p.m. Uh, and outside. Alcohol is the worst. <laughs> alcohol is the worst. It, it's it's not great. But then you have people, you know, they're handling. You have fun with it. That's not a fight. A fight isn't with the alcohol industry. Our fight is with getting behind the wheel when you've been drinking. And um, Utah was the first state to lower it from 0 0.08 to 0 0.05, and they were heavily opposed by the Restaurant Association. And I, I've tried to reach out to them on social media. I will call them out all the time, and I will continue. I am not afraid of stepping on toes, and I will continue to do so. They will never respond. And we have statistics to show if you're not, if you're not driving, because they're worried about the bottom line, the revenue, right? Uh, but if you're not driving, you're most likely going to stay out longer and you're going to drink more. So yep. 
countries such as Germany and Ireland have lowered the blood alcohol content and there are um, I hear they drink a lot over there you could say that <laughs> you could say that and actually per capita Sweden drinks as much as the US uh, and yeah we have a third amount of deaths per capita just because of the social attitude so what we're doing is uh, working to lower the blood alcohol content and it's not a question if, if we're going to do it we are going to do it don't know how long it's going to take but I won't stop until we get there and I know I'm fighting for the right thing and I'm told all the time you're up against giants you're up against these you know Washington and lobbyists I don't care they've never been up like someone like me and, and, and I know I'm fighting for the right thing and I won't stop because they're fighting for revenue I'm fighting for my son's legacy there's no way they're going to win that fight and I know it's the right thing and then so changing the social attitude you know it's hard to change you know, you know it's hard to teach an old dog new tricks we've met the most resistance among older people the older generation but I've spoken to over 5,000 high school kids in the last in the last month and a half and um, you know putting a face to drunk driving for them you know having high school jocks which are also the biggest risk factor right young male um, 18 to, to 30 and to have them you know crying coming up saying I promise you I will never do it uh, but ultimately the, you know the ultimate solution we gave out three scholarships last year to Udacity University for a non program for autonomous cars self-driving cars that's the ultimate solution, whether it's drunk driving, drug driving, distracted driving, you know, texting and driving or drowsy driving. It's, that's the ultimate solution. But we're a good 10, 15, maybe 20 years away from fully automated cars. And until that point, we're going to continue with this fight. And to me, you know, with the board, we had a meeting with our board for, for Liam's Life Foundation. And I spoke, we spoke about it. And one of the guys who's a great strategist said, well, why don't we put all our focus on self-driving cars? Because to me, this fight isn't just about that, but it's for for the fight for my son. And you know, with lobbyists, with we don't just see it with drunk driving. We see it with sugar, right? Mm -hmm. Big soda. We see it with uh, gun control. And again, I was in the military. I work with law enforcement. I completely understand the need for people to have weapons. But it's it's funny because a lot of times when you get you know real pro gun people, as soon as you start bringing it up, it's like whoa, whoa, whoa! Don't take my guns. If you're a good law-abiding citizen and you have no history of mental health, and especially with the Kramagai world, a lot of them are very pro-gun, and I'm, I'm not against guns. If, if you are a good, upstanding citizen, it won't affect you. And it, what bigger, Kramagai is self-defense. What is more self-defense than making sure that people that are not stable or are criminals can't get their hands on guns than, 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 than that? To have make sure, just like it takes me longer to get a library card than it does to take me get me a gun license, and just teaching, just when I get a driver's license, teach someone when it comes to the responsibility of owning a gun. And I think it was Trump actually. I don't want to get too political. He mm -hmm. said yesterday, "Well, in that case, we should we should um, we shouldn't let people drive cars because cars kill people as well." Cars is a mean of transportation. It's one of the dumbest things I've heard because cars is a mean of transportation. Guns serve one purpose and one purpose only, and that's to take life. And, uh, you know, you can argue, yes, for self-defense, yes, but the gun in itself, its ultimate purpose is to take life. And, um, you know, when, when it comes to the fight of what's right and what's wrong, that's why the lowering of blood, the blood alcohol content is so important to me is to say we have to stand up. That's... To what's wrong? That's kind of what's weird. Like, why would somebody have a problem with reducing that level? The arguments that we get is, oh, it won't make a difference. It won't make a difference. And then, you know, 
first of all, that's not a good. So, we what we're struggling with right now is to find someone who can write the bill for us. And no one in Sacramento, and I don't mind calling people out, but no one has taken this on. We've been really lucky to meet with uh, Lieutenant Governor Newsom's team, and they're very supportive. And I, 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 I gotta say, they gave me hope, and um, because there's been a lot of hot air, and they haven't been able to help us find someone who's willing to take on that bill. And at first it was, well, statistics, uh, there's no statistics on that lowering it will make a difference, which is, I don't know if you can swear on this show, but Absolutely. it's bullshit because there's plenty of statistics from Europe, countries that used to be a 0.08. Sweden at one point was a 0.08. And as we lowered it, in my opinion, it doesn't take a neuroscientist to to recognize that if you have less blood in your system, uh, alcohol in your blood, you you your reaction time is better and your decision making is better. But let's say that, pretend that we didn't know that for a fact. Um, just look at those countries that have lowered it and surprise, surprise, countries that went from 0.08 to 0.05, the amount of deaths because of drunk driving in traffic went down almost 50%. Yeah, you also have the, you have the scientific part of it, but you also take away, like a 0.08, I think for some people, leaves too much of a, a, a mental buffer. Yep, 100%. Right? Like, oh, 0.08, so that gives me at least two, you know, kind of like the math, but if it's like 0.04, you're like, hmm... I might be at a beer for the night, guys. And that's, that's you know, it's funny that you say that because that's, when I go out to high schools, my first question is, what's the legal blood alcohol content in the US? And someone always knows, 0.08. My second question is, how many drinks is that? And in Sweden, where it's 0.02, that means you can have one drink, one beer, one glass of wine. You know you got to wait at least 60 minutes, preferably 90 minutes, depending on how much you drink. And the problem with the blood alcohol con- content is that it's very subjective. It depends on how you know, how big you are, how much you weigh, how often you drink, but also in from day to day. How much did you eat that day? How much did you drink that day? Um, how much did you sleep? So all these things make it very subjective, but knowing that you can have one drink and then wait 60 to 90 minutes and you should be okay. But the problem with 0.08 is, and a lot of people don't actually know how much it is, it's six large beers for an average male of 170 pounds on an empty stomach within an hour. At 0.08, you're drunk. And then you're supposed to make the decision if you're okay to drive. What happens when you drink? You feel like you're Superman. You feel like you're better. And every single person in this country who's an adult has at some point had a friend who's been drinking and they asked them, are you okay to drive? And the answer is always the same. Yeah, yeah, I'm fine. So with our nonprofit, what's really important to us is don't drink and drive. Think before you drink. Uh, don't take. If you think you're gonna drink, then leave the car at home. If you can afford a drink at a bar, you can afford an Uber and a Lyft. But also, don't let a friend drink and drive. From the Krav Maga world and the martial art world, we have a, we train kids and we work a lot with anti-bullying. And it, peer pressure a lot of times has a has a bad you know uh, connotation to it. But peer pressure can be good because we teach kids don't be bullies teach them how not to be bullied, but also to stand up against bullies. And same thing with drunk driving. If you have a friend who's been drinking, do not let them drive. And if they get upset, and if you know they've been drinking, sure, but if they're so upset with you the next day when they're sobered up and not thankful, then maybe they're not that great of a person anyways. Yep, yep. Don't be a dick. Yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> I wonder what, at what point, because uh, uh, trying to use logic and reason to somebody that's intoxicated is a waste of time. Yeah. Right. And we've all been there with friends, relatives, etc. But I wonder at one point in time, like, like where can we hit people in the campaign to really get them? Is it, 
when they're at home thinking about going out. Yes. You know, when they're still like a, a sober brain is it right then? Because I was even thinking like maybe putting a sign up at the at a bar as they leave, like blinking, don't do it, you know, or something. But at that point, they've probably the reason is already gone. Yeah, their their logic because the alcohol takes over. Yes, but some point in the cycle, and then there has to be numerous points and repetitive points. It, it's you know we had a, a Super Bowl commercial uh, put on by the transportation of uh, Department of Transportation in Missouri. And it was a social experiment where they put an iPad with a frog similar to, to Liam's frog at bars. And then they had people watch a, a short movie done by Bobby Razak, who's that it's on, on YouTube, people can find it there. And um, they got to watch this 10 minute video and then they filmed their reaction. And, you know, as you know, you can't, you can't reason with a drunk person. Um, and people react differently to alcohol, alcohol, but it's people do dumb shit when they're drunk. And that's why it's so important. If you think you're going to drink, and that was always the thing, you know, in Sweden, and, and the arguments, the excuses that we run into, uh, the counter arguments, which are all flawed and they don't work, but it's one, well, not every place in the US is, uh, has great transportation, right? Taxis and Uber and Lyft and so on. I'm from Sweden. It's a very, uh, you have the city centers, but then it's very spread out. Very, very spread out. And if we were able to do, I've slept in my car when we've been out partying. Uh, and, and all my friends have as well, or waited till the morning bus came at six in yeah. the morning. So, um, it, you know, right now, it's, I think it's, the bill is up again uh, for keeping nightclubs open to 4 a.m. And some of the people we work with are really against it. And, um, I'm sure it is going to continue being a problem in this country, but the bars being open to 4 a.m. in itself isn't the problem because in Sweden, nightclubs are open to 5 a.m. And we have, again, a third of the amount of uh, drunk drivers per capita. Do you have other issues? For sure. You're going to have more fights. I'm sure you're going to have more rape. You're going to have a lot of other issues. Um, but the drunk driving, it, that's not the root cause. The social attitude is the root cause. And that's what we've got to change. I think we should treat them almost like a like a violent crime it, it is it is because everyone you're driving like a serious deadly weapon yeah everyone's and you go drive you're sitting in a deadly weapon yeah that's all and then uh you're trusting other people that's a whole other thing like you know you always hear ah i trust no one i trust no you're like some people have tattoos of that but yeah if you've ever driven a car, you'd trust a lot of people that you've never met yeah. to obey yeah. the laws. Yeah. That's part of the community aspect of driving. I trust that you're going to stay in that lane over there. I trust you're going to stay in this lane over there. I trust that you're going to stop at this red light so you don't run T-bone me. Yeah. There's a whole lot of trust happening. And when people violate that trust, this is actually what really gets me upset. I, I, I usually get really kind of frustrated and angry at every traffic collision that I go to mm. because somebody there did something selfish. Yeah. Yeah. Unless something mechanical gave out or something, then not understandable. But like most of the time, it's a, a, a selfish thing. It's a me world. Yeah. And there's and and deciding to take yourself into a deadly weapon and risk other people's lives uh, to to put it lightly is rather irritating. And it, I think it's weird that people defend that. Exactly, and and that's what's really frustrating to us has been that 
we're trying to this fight that we have it's not for us it's for other people so the other parents don't have to go through what we've gone through for us it's too late we already lost our son because of this so we're doing this now obviously you know i want to make sure that my my newborn uh nico liam's little brother who's now nine months um doesn't have to deal with her and his future siblings and or their future siblings but it, it, it's very frustrating and this these excuses to why you should be allowed to drink and drive and uh you know saying that it won't make a difference if you lower it well one again we have statistics to show not that yes it will it will make a difference and then the best part is it's now for commercial drivers such as uber driver taxi drivers bus drivers the legal blood alcohol content is 0.05 so i have two problems with that first that means that we have recognized that more than 0.05 is a problem and two, if you're a commercial driver, that trust that you put into a commercial driver, you should have 0 0.00 for a commercial driver. Why would you be allowed to drink before you take other human beings' lives into your hands yeah. and drive around and get paid for it? Uh, it I'm going to switch gears a little bit. But if somebody wants to like help or join the fight with you or learn from more information about this specific fight, where would they go? Uh, liamslife.org that's the uh, that's the non-profit that we have a 501c3 um, volunteers you know I, I the problem even that is something I've learned a lot about the non-profit world you know mm -hmm. I've never been in that world per se before I've donated and I've done a lot of things I'm on an advisory board for one um, but really what I don't like is that you're constantly asking for money and but you have to because you got to run it like a business even though it's not for profit you need money to make changes. The political side, um, giving out the grants and the scholarships, and you know, going out speaking. You know, we, me and my wife, we haven't taken a penny out of that nonprofit for ourselves. We do it, and I'm going to continue doing that. But it takes up a lot of time, and we need people to hire people to work with the nonprofit. So um, that, and then um, that's why the book that I wrote, uh, "Life Is a Moment." Uh, I'm donating 20% of all proceeds from that to the to to the nonprofit, uh, volunteering for our events, um, and ultimately is don't let a friend drink and drive. Uh, we have a documentary is coming out. Uh, it's we've done shooting. They've been embedded with us for 10 months, and I can tell you, talking about being vulnerable and and uh, you know to have a camera in your face when uh, at times over the they've been with us. It's almost a year, actually. It's been really, really difficult at times to have them there. But I know... So we went back to for a therapy session last week, and they were there with the cameras. And I spoke to my brother. And I'm usually a pretty private person. Um, and my brother said, why would you allow them to be in, the, in, a, in a therapy session with you guys? I said, because if people are going to understand what an effect drunk driving actually has i have to be willing to open up and be vulnerable and be honest and and let people in on on the darkest of moments because that's the only way for them to to see 66 percent of the u.s population will at some point be affected by drunk driving and back to the excuses one of them is well maybe it's more costly to to you know more people are going to be prosecuted do you know how much it costs the U.S. in, forget people that pass away because of drunk driving, that gets killed every 53 minutes, the medical bills, the legal system, going through a manslaughter case, which we did, which is a year long, it's not cheap. It costs the U.S., I think it's something like $130 billion a year because of drunk driving. It costs the, uh, each American, 
including children, $500 per person a year because of drunk driving. So, you know, no parent should have to go through the pain that we've got. No parent should have to bury their child. But unfortunately, it happens on a daily basis anyways because of accidents, because of diseases and so on. Like you mentioned yourself, mm. I just had one, my, my very closest friend in Sweden just lost his child a couple of weeks ago at birth. Um, and, you know, it's, it's to see what he's gone through. He, he flew out right away when, when, when Liam passed away and he was here for me. And to now have him go through what, what I went through. Uh, but in, in, in that case, it, it was nature that decided that this child isn't gonna live anymore. In our case, our son, like you said earlier, you know, he was very, very healthy. He was so happy, he was the happiest of children. Nico, Liam's brother, is the same way. That it's, sometimes it's crazy because it looks so alike and the personalities are so alike. Very giving, he always giving. Like he'll give his toy, even his green frog, he'll give to other people and he, his favorite treat, uh, treats. And my dog's with me outside. My, his favorite uh, sweets and foods, he will give them to other people and you know, it, it's what it left us with more than anything is just a big, just a feeling of, of why so pointless, such an unnecessary thing. And this could in theory end tomorrow. It won't, but it could. And that's why I, I know we're gonna get there. What did, it, what did it mean to you guys when uh, you, you found out your wife was pregnant? You know, it's crazy because we, one, you know, it was only a couple of months after Liam's passing, but we were already thinking about, you know, having, we wanted Liam to have siblings and pretty close in age so that, they, you know, they can play and be friends. Um, I, it, it was, it was Thanksgiving. Uh, and I'm from Sweden, we don't celebrate Thanksgiving, so it's never been, but I like it, it's a, it's a nice uh, holiday, but that night, Michelle did the test, and came in, she was crying, and I said, what's, what's wrong, you know, I was, at that point, I was, she cried herself to sleep every night for months, and I said, what's wrong, and she said, I'm pregnant, and I honestly didn't think that she could become, get pregnant, just because the amount of stress and the cortisol in her system, and mm. uh, it was the brightest light in, in in a very dark tunnel. Um, but it comes with a lot of other issues or things to think of at least. You know, it's really important that that he, he wasn't a replacement child, you know, for him to have his own identity. Uh, and now being born, and especially with, you know, there's people around the world who know who my son is. They don't know me, but they know who Liam is. And for Nico never to feel that he lives in his brother's shadow, that he understands why we we have this fight, but to be proud of his brother. And, you know, one day I'm going to have to explain to him why he sees these pictures of his brother, but why he's not here with us. And um, um, it, it, it comes comes with a lot. Like, you know, normally you have the hand-me-downs from an older brother to a younger brother, but certain things, certain clothes, certain toys, obviously the frog and so on that, it won't be handed down to him because it's really important that he's his own individual. And um, the name Liam means the people's protector. And when we named Liam, that obviously wasn't on our mind that that was going to be the way. But the day he was born at St. John's, I posted a picture of him. I said, he can be what he wants when he grows up. But what I want him to do is to have a, a, a positive impact on this world. And uh, I have tattooed on my back no footprint too small to leave an imprint on this world and um 
you know, he's had more of an imprint in his 50 months of living than most people that live 80 years on this planet, saved more lives than most people ever do. Uh, so then when Nico was born, um, we, we, we felt like it wasn't just our victory. It was the people, all the people that were around us. We've had an amazing social uh, network around us and, and friends and family, and I'm so grateful to, to have them. And uh, it felt like it wasn't just our victory. It felt like it was the people's victory. And Nico, the name Nico means the people's victory. Part of the thing I find, I find comfort in is knowing there's like a law of thermodynamics that, and it says energy cannot be created or destroyed. Yeah. And so, you know, you guys, and now especially Nico, will always have Liam's energy with him. Yeah. And, you know, in, in my book, I write because, you know, I've never felt so much love in my life as then and I've always been I'm very independent um, I'm, I I like I don't like asking people for help and I didn't have to ask anyone for help people were just there that day in church they said it was the priest came up to us afterwards and said I've been here for 30 years I've never seen as many people in this church there wasn't there wasn't seats available for people to be there there was uh, you know um, it was just a lot of love in that room and it was it was it was it uh, was it was amazing. It was again. That was a light in a very, very dark, dark time period. And um, the in the book, I write about you know what to say to to a grieving parent because a lot of people reached out and they would say and strangers and they would say things. And I know it came from a good place, but I, I the the book has dark humor in it. But it's supposed to be somewhat educational as well. And things like, you know, everything happens for a reason. He's in a better place. As a parent who's lost their child, it's not something that you want to hear. And my wife actually wrote to someone and said, in a better place, what can be a better place than in his mother's arms? And the person that she wrote it to, you know, it wasn't angry, but she just mm -hmm. asked. And the woman actually wrote back and I said, you know what, I don't know. It's just what I've been told my whole life. And um, it's... Uh, you know what happens? I find when people go through terribly traumatic experiences, you end up having to help others. You know, because yeah. other people are so affected as well, and there's there there isn't like a magical combination of words that creates some sort of weird password to make that person feel better. No, no. But then that person that's going through it ends up having, just like your wife, ends up having to help other people. Yeah. <laughs> like it's kind of ironic and, and and to circle back um i showed you up on the sword strength is a choice yeah another part of the tagline there but that doesn't always mean you know put up your dukes right no. it also means having the strength and choosing to know when to put them down yeah and when to ask for help and it was it was you know i i, I got tired of saying thank you because i was saying thank you to so many people and then you know i was like I was talking to someone. I was like, I gotta, I gotta, I gotta send out thank you notes. So I gotta do something. It's like, I, I don't think people expect that of you. I don't think that's what they want. They just want to be there. And you know, a lot of friends they were saying, what well, you know, especially a lot of times guys like the doers, right? What can I do? What can I say? Tell me, tell me what I can do for you. And I read something that was um, very, very true. It said, can you give me my child back? If you can't, just let me fa walk with me as I face my, my demons. And uh, that was very true, you know. And now, you know, from experience with my, with my friend, 
you can't you can't do anything there's nothing you can do nothing you can say that's going to take away the pain all you can do is just let them know that you're there and 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 you know it's cliche but time heal all all, all wounds but it, it, it's something it's a scar that will never go away it will always right. be there but the ways are spaced apart yeah exactly and you have you 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 learn to live with it you know it you learned that it's you learn that it, it's okay not to be okay and you know um before liam passed i i i know i i don't i just didn't cry it's not that i looked down and thought it was something that wasn't tough or strong i just didn't last time i'd cried was 10 years before my grandma passed away and going from not crying to crying to the point you know like a child as a child when you cry to the point where your throat is hurting mm -hmm. and uh, and to know that it's it's okay you know it's it's actually really healing um to cry and I, that's like i said the book was for liam it was a way for myself to write and and for parents for for other people that are dealing with 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 grief uh, and how to, how to how to handle it but i figured if if i can write a book there's very few books out there written by men who have lost children and if i can write a book that's very very honest really talking about my own thoughts my emotions you know a soldier for example coming back from from iraq or afghanistan who might not be willing to pick up a woman's book uh, about child loss even though she tells the same stories I'm telling, but he can relate to me a little bit more. And if the stigma of being a fighter, of being macho, of being tough, if I can really put down on, on paper my, my vulnerability and my, 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 the emotions I went through, then uh, the book is already out in Swedish. And when I did an interview for, for a newspaper over there, one of the guys asked, or the journalist asked, what's your expectations? I hadn't really thought about it and I you know being an author isn't my main profession if the book doesn't sell it won't affect me financially and that's not why I wrote the book but if the book can help one person in their grieving process then I would then I'll be happy and I know now from from the book being out in Swedish it's helped a lot more people because they've written to me and told me that you know I, I hadn't dealt, dealt with my grief in a healthy way in the past few years it helped me and so on and I'm you know, obviously in English, it's, it's the same. I, I hope that it can help people with the grieving process. And, you know, some, and, and the same guy actually asked, are you nervous? And I wasn't nervous about, you know, sales and, and so on. But, you know, obviously when you spend hundreds of hours on something, you want people to enjoy it. Mm -hmm. But like, I'm, I'm a pretty private person. And to really write down my emotions. Like I'm, I'm active on social media. I write things, but it's usually... Now it's it's really promoting the nonprofit and the work that we do. But it used to be a bunch of dumb stuff, funny things, yep. videos, thoughts, promoting the gyms and fights and so on. But um, private, privately, you know, I never used Facebook, for example, as, as a as a diary, writing down my thoughts and feelings. And here I am writing my deepest thoughts and my my emotions on paper for for thousands of people to read. Um, you know, that was that was something was very new for me. Let me see if I can make it a little bit more um, acute. Um, first of all, from from somebody that lost his father prematurely before he finished writing. Yeah. Um, thank you, because if anybody, if nobody reads it, 
Your son will. Yeah, thank you. And I mean, people are going to read it, but it's, it's, a, it's a reminder, just like this poster up here. I mean, something can happen right now and you leave. Yeah. And then what's going to be left for your son? Yeah. Now he has content. He has podcasts. He has the book. He has these writings. He has, he has like parts of dad to help guide him on his life. Yeah. And so that's, that's something that, and it's, and I told you a little bit about why I have this podcast. And that is, that is one of the main reasons. That's a good reason to have a podcast. And so um, I'm very, very particular. Um, and, and the people I have on, it's, uh, has a deep meaning for me and I, and I want them to come on and I want to learn, but it's also so my kids can learn. They're five and two now, but one day they're going to be listening to this stuff. And so will your son. And um, the night before Liam passed, um, I wrote a poem. I never write. Like I said before, I have never written a poem, I think, in my life. It wasn't a school task. Um, And it started off as a joke because we have as a rule at home, you know, we're not on our cell phones when we eat. And I was doing something on my phone and Michelle goes, what are you doing? I'm like, oh, I'm writing a poem. And she's like, oh, yeah, for sure. And then I put my phone down. I'm like, you know what? Just because she doesn't expect it, I'm going to write the poem. And I wrote, uh, you know, I thought, okay, what am I going to write about? And and I read it in church that day at the funeral. And uh, uh, I sent it to Michelle that night. So I'm glad I did because it has a timestamp to show. And, and, you know, I'm not religious. Uh, I believe in something, but I call myself I don't know it because, uh, you know, whatever religion you you belong to 66 percent of the world population will be wrong then because but you know uh if there is a god then they're all fighting in the same name and um i don't know what it is and i don't spend time focusing on it but i, I believe in something but that was crazy to me i've never written a poem and the night before his passing i write a poem to him uh and in that poem, I write, you know, you taught me a lot of things. And one of the things was, you know, I'm, I'm afraid of death. Uh, I've never been afraid of death, but I'm afraid of death. Not death in itself, but not being there for you and not being able to provide for you. Uh, that, and, you know, uh, it, was, it was another way around I was afraid of. And, but one of the things that helped me the most, and Michelle struggled with that survivor's guilt, you know, because the first time you smile, the first time you laugh, the first time you spend five minutes not thinking about them and then you think to yourself, how can I smile, how can I laugh when life in itself has ended? Um, but the way I look at it and I think it's healthy was or is still, um, you know, if it was the other way around, if Liam would have lived and I would have passed away, I would have wanted him to always remember me, but I wouldn't want him not to lead a happy life and 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 be 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 happy you know pursue a happiness you know finding happiness it's the ultimate solution it's the ultimate goal in life you know no money yes you need shelter you need your basic needs but after that money doesn't really mean anything relationships love and happiness mean everything and it sounds so cliche but it's so true so if I wasn't here, I would want Liam to be happy. And I know that the type of person that he was and the type of person he would grow up to be would want that for me and for Michelle. And I don't think there's a bigger way of honoring him than making sure that, you know, his legacy makes change and that we live our lives to the fullest. 
part of the it's part of the reason why I have that know thyself sign up there. Understanding your why, understanding yeah. what, what your happy is, and uh, making sure that you are operating on a frequency that you're able to help others. Um, speaking of um, a fight, and I, and I don't want to close this out before we talk about it, but you, uh, you've had a lot of fights yeah. all over the world. Yeah. Uh, you thought you had your last fight last February. February 17th, yeah. But here we are. You have another one coming up next month. <laughs> yeah, I really wasn't supposed to fight again. Uh, I was done. And I even said to my wife, I said, that even if I want to, don't let me. You know, fighting, it, it, it's, it's almost like an addiction, that rush, that adrenaline rush. Um, I, I've been asked several times by people, it's like, oh, how do you find the hatred towards your opponent? And a fight isn't against an opponent. Yes, those 15 minutes or wherever, however long the fight's going to be, uh, is you, you're trying to dominate that person. But, you know, a lot of times... I've been asked as well, how can you hug them? You just beat them up and then beat you up and then you're hugging because you're on a journey together. You've trained and you know how much time and preparation you put into a fight. And if they're in there with you putting up a fight, you cannot do anything but respect them for that. And, you know, once the fight's over, it's like you've been on this journey together and that's why, you know, fighters usually hug after a fight. And um, um, I, I, that that feeling of preparing for something my way is jujitsu now because i can continue competing in jujitsu uh, without getting punched in the head which isn't healthy <laughs> uh and uh but i was supposed to be done i actually didn't want to fight again i thought i was going to be done but then i got this call from bulldog media it's a big media company in, in sweden and they said we're doing one show and we want you to to come over and be the main event for it I said, nope, I'm done. I've even been offered title fights and I've turned it down since and uh, I'm done fighting. And they said, well, we'll, we'll do it around Liam's Life, the foundation. And they're donating 50% of all proceeds of the whole promotion to the wow. nonprofit. And because the media company, they're also doing one year of advertising for the nonprofit in Sweden afterwards. Um, I can say it here because it's not in Sweden, but Crow Cop is fighting May 25th, as long as for Bellator, he's been cleared, as long as he doesn't get knocked out in that fight, he's going to be the main kip, it's three boxing matches, three kickboxing matches, three MMA fights, and he's the main event for the kickboxing side, and to be on the same card as a legend, I've, and I've always had this kind of secret dream to end my career back in my home city, in my home country, and uh, um, it was, you know, the flying me and my wife out, and I, I just couldn't turn it down. That is awesome. Yes, uh, I, I'm, I'm happy and proud to be part of it. And it's awesome to have something as strong as that to prepare for. Yeah. You know, I think having something to prepare for is something I think is, some, is needed in people. That's the why. You, right? You've got to have something. Have something to, to fight for or, in your case, against, but it's also for at the same time. Right. Uh, and then having something strenuous to do to go against and like i talked about without that stuff man i think we start to rot yeah you know um now you, your book is um going to be out in the u.s uh other parts of the world uh yes uh amazon countries that have amazon not all of them i know for sure right now england and australia i believe are having it as well but all over the u.s um and it will be on amazon uh the name Life is a Moment, which I have tattooed on my back as well. Uh, the website, I'm not sure if it's done today. It might be up tomorrow. Uh, lifeisamoment.com as well. Um, 
the the reason why I chose that name is because life is a moment and and it's you know it's precious and I want people to remember that but life is a moment also spells out Liam um, so that's the reason why I chose the name for the book and you know it shows again my wife writes a lot better than I do and she posted uh, something on social media yesterday about the book and um, she said it well you know what people saw of, of our fight was what media portrayed and they didn't show what went on behind the scenes you know dealing with uh, with the, the, that roller coaster of thinking that he was going to make it what happens when you have to be there when you're donating someone's organs going through a court case but finding your way back to to happiness and 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 doing that is it's not something even if you wanted to that you can put on social media uh someone put you know social media is people's highlights of life right and uh um the the book really shows that and i know to say that it's not a sad story would be a lie and there's certain couple of chapters in there that are difficult to get through but in the end of the day it's a love story and it is a book about uh, drive and motivation and finding that way back to happiness that's beautiful man i'm still s stuck on the acronym <laughs> that worked out it. um you also have your own personal account uh social media accounts but i also want to point out we haven't even talked about it but your 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 gyms Oh yeah, yeah. Systems Training Center. What are you up to four? Yeah, we're at four gyms right now, and I opened the doors first of July two thousand thirteen to Systems Training Center in Hawthorne, which was the first location. And I had a mission, you know. It's you said it before, you know. Finding your why in life is is so important, and I already had my why. You know, I I love the fighting, and what my goal was to take martial arts that's given me so much and done so much for me, uh, and and bring it to other people and i had a, a vision with systems training center because we have some really vicious killers in there some really tough fighters uh but they're the nicest the guys i jokingly always say you know it's not fighters because people think the fighters are mean most fighters are the nicest guys or girls and i say it's not fighters who fight for parking lots of whole foods it's the yogis because they don't get their aggression out but you know it's intimidating for a lot of people walking into a gym and you know they see guys with tattoos and cauliflower ears and so on and it's intimidating to see um, but i wanted to create an environment with realistic martial arts that actually works not the stuff that has been watered down and doesn't work and and stay true to the arts but at the same time have a family environment where people you know kids we have kids as young as three i think our oldest member is 60 something um and a place for everyone and especially down you know we have locations in Hawthorne, Inglewood, Westwood, and Encino. My goal was to open 10 gyms in 10 years. My, my, I've changed that a little bit. That's still going to happen, but it won't be in 10 years because I want to make sure that, you know, we don't lose the quality of, of what we have. Uh, I'm, I'm really proud of what we've created, uh, not because of, you know, guys winning titles and so on but the environment that we created that people come in and say this is my home away from home and friendships and <laughs> now we even have a couple who's getting married uh that to me you know and, and and having these guys who are fighters but now have a career and uh and a means to to because people think you know they see the ufc and they say oh look at these guys they're, they're rich 
fighting is a rough rough business to be in a very obviously high risk but it's 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 not bringing in football money that's for yeah, sure yeah. and for them to now feel like they have a meaning with what they do even during their careers but definitely especially after their careers and um down in in Hawthorne Inglewood you know we have a lot of kids at risk um that have chosen the gym uh instead of gangbanging for example we just had a kid who was from that background who is in college now he just had his first fight and uh that you know even if it's just one life right same as with the drunk driving mm -hmm. if it saves one life then it's worth it but we have so many of them and um you know, some of them can't afford memberships, so we have you know, a trade out like an internship. So, okay, you can't afford a, mem afford a membership, then you have to intern X amount of hours per week. For them, it's a way to get to train. For us, it's a way to teach them what it's like to be a good employee. Now you have something to put on your resume from a young age. You know how important it is to communicate, to be on time, to do what you say you're going to do and so on. So, uh, I, I love what we do, but like I said, I have two eyes now. I have that, and that's going to continue because I see it going hand in hand. Martial artists are doers, and that's why another reason why I know that we're going to succeed because we've got the martial art industry behind us and the, and, and the people in martial arts um, to empower people, whether they're kids that have been bullied or women that have been sexually attacked or people that are obese. You know, I wish we had kept track on how many thousands of pounds that we ever had people lose. Um, and uh, just making sure that people, you know, it's not about quantity, it's about quality of life and making sure that people are the best version of themselves. I always say, you know, I'm biased because I'm in this industry, but if the pe more people did martial arts, there'd be a le lot less violent crimes, there'd be a lot less wars in this world because there's nothing, no other place where you learn better that, you know, colors don't matter you know if you you we sweat the same sweat we bleed the same blood religion doesn't matter the only rule that we have at the gym is no no active gang banging like you know we've had people that have been to jail and come out they got tattoos but as long as they're not actively gang banging that's the only rule that we have um i don't care what background you're from i don't care what god you believe in what political part you're affiliated with uh we we're all part of the same family i think um I think it'd be pretty cool if uh, my son was able to call you coach after <laughs> after down. all the parallels. We might have a spot, Paul. <laughs> Absolutely. And, uh, you know, it's um, I, I think the documentary will, will show a lot, you know, the book in itself. And then the documentary is called Letters to Liam. Um, even now, even looking at the trailer, the first time I saw the trailer, you know, I broke down watching it and the guy's that are doing it is called Winter's Rock Entertainment and uh, they're, they're as passionate about this fight I've spoken to the, doc, the, the director three times today about because we're trying to make Hawthorne the first city in the California to lower it to 0 0.05 so from a legal standpoint prosecution wise you can't change it but you can enforce in the city of Hawthorne 0 0.05 and the mayor at our uh, Hydra Ward is standing behind it, the chief of police. They get a municipal code? Yeah, yeah, exactly. And uh, uh, that's a huge step. You know, mm -hmm. we've been faced by nothing, we've been facing nothing but no sayers and uh, naysayers and, and people resisting what we're doing or not taking it serious enough. And it'd be a huge milestone for us. And uh, again, it's not if it's going to happen, but when.
Well, I mean, you, you have my deepest respects. Thank you, sir. And the other people that have my deepest respects respects you. I mean, it's like, um, I'm just very grateful. I'm grateful for you and grateful for your fight and grateful for your family. Thank you, sir. And um, especially for your time. Um, if you don't mind, I'd like to give you this coin. This is a first, like, uh, Sisu Wei coin. <sighs> I haven't talked about it this on the, on the show yet, but each guest is going to get one. So you're the first one on the air to get this one. And if you see it top, health is wealth. No brainer, right? Yeah. There's your vulnerability of strength. And then down here, strength is a choice. That's a good saying. And then on the back, um, on the back it says, you are, let me show you right here. You are the master of your fate. You are the captain of your soul. It's that line that you picked up on. Yeah. Because I showed you Invictus before the show started, the poem that I have up on the wall. Yeah. And you picked up on that part. It came from a song, but it's in here. And then um, get up strong and be unconquerable. And I think you'll recognize the the lighthouse there. Yep. 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 The light and the dark. And then also now that you, especially now that you've read that um, off of Reddit, you understand the waves. Yes, sir. I do. And that's the meaning of that. So. Thank you very much. I really appreciate it. Yes, thank you. Um, it's funny with the word Sisu, being from Sweden, you know, um, Finland being, you know, one of the Scandinavian countries, and uh, we are very aware of the Finns and, mm -hmm. and, and the Sisu. And the equivalent in, in English is berserk, I'd say. And berserk is a Swedish word. Uh, it means actually someone made out of mountain, basically out of stone, uh, and it came from the Vikings, right? And you know, Sweden, Norway, Denmark, Finland—we all cousins. And uh, um, the the Finns are very mind strong in in general, mm -hmm. and uh, uh, it's uh, it's cool that you have that as a name for the for the podcast. Yeah, I think the closest word that I, if I had to pick one word in English, I would say grit. Very good book, by the way, from by oh, Angela Duckworth. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I've talked about that one, a fantastic book. That, I mean, I almost brought it up, but I didn't want to go off on a total tangent. But when you're talking about, um, you know, fighters or, or people facing stressful situations, whether a fighter or, or a kid or whoever, it's, it's grit. That's what gets, that's where people find success. Yeah. And, you know, have you heard about the whole study from uh, West Point? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, obviously it's in the book. The grit so, scale, yeah. Yeah, yeah, the grit. So there we go. So that's, there's a whole bunch of stuff that ties into that. And at first, the, my first CSU poster, I used to have, it's in here now because of the show, but I had it by the front door so that every every morning when my kids left, that's what they they would see when they that's would leave cool. the house. And that was made when we were going through um, uh, battling for Connor's life. That's mm -hmm. when that thing was made. So this whole thing is a little bit full circle. He's turning three in a couple of months. Yep. Yep. Uh, what date? Uh, June 24th. 24th. Yeah, that's exactly. June so it's, I mean, it's like you guys were there a month before we were. Yeah. May 25th months. was uh, is Liam's birthday and is coming up and, uh, you know, you're big into CrossFit. We actually have a CrossFit ward for Liam. We um, tried to get um, CrossFit to recognize it as a hero ward, but it's specifically for, um, for fallen officers and... Uh, uh, military but um, they recognized it and they had we had gyms around the world doing it we're going to continue doing it and the ward in itself is, is cool because it's a partners everything is based on five 
525.15, which was his date of birth. Um, but it's a partner word. And the reason why we have it as a partner word is because, again, it's not just about you. It's about your friends mm-hmm. and the people around you and doing things together and for others. So um, 525, if you're into CrossFit, I hope you guys can do Liam's Life word as well. Uh, I'm doing it. Thank you, sir. And I'll publish it absolutely as well. Um, for the listeners, if you guys are interested, we've kind of slow rolled. Uh, if you're interested in getting a Sisu Way poster, if you go to the com and you click on the store tab, there's a, a few different options there that's now available. And I'm going to have to get one for the gyms. Yeah, thank you. That's <laughs> so, you know, I never, you know, look back, I never imagined that this, this is where it would go or what would happen or that it would be a thing that other people would want somewhere, you know, and I know you can relate to that. Like you never, it's like this, this thing that's kind of like grown, um, from struggle, grown, uh, grown from dirt, uh-huh. you know, when it's stuff crumbles down. Uh, if you, if you take care of it and you decide things can grow from it. Um, so that poster, um, you can get it framed. It comes in canvas, but, uh, you know, I envision in kids rooms, in gyms, um, everywhere, you know, somebody that is interested in a little friendly reminder. Uh, I don't, I don't plan on making um, a dime off of any of that stuff. Oh, wow. I'm going to end up. Obviously, it'll, it'll cover the cost, but from that, there's also another little uh, square print that says "Health is wealth, vulnerability is strength. Strength is a choice." If somebody wants that for your office, it would look really cool there. But that stuff is is going to cover the cost and then whatever's left over going to be using that to help people going through a struggle. Amazing. That's good. And, wh- and an example of that was, uh, and you know, when you're going through a traumatic situation, something as simple as somebody providing you food yeah. is like monumental. Yeah. And so hopefully be able to uh, make enough money and then partner with a food company like territory and to be able to provide that, delivered meals for people going through a struggle that's actually one of the best things that our friends did for us uh they created a meal train and for almost two months you know uh people would bring over food every single day so they had this train and people could sign up for it and bring food and it was so amazing because you know we weren't we're struggling getting out of bed right uh we had a fridge that was fuller than ever because we weren't really eating and friends had to tell us to eat uh, and it, it sounds like something so simple but you're right you know that's yep. if if it's anything you can do it's it's making sure that people get some exercise get some food in them and just be there for them that's all you can do yep. for someone going through grief thank you again thank you sir and remember health is wealth vulnerability is strength Strength is a choice. You are the master of your fate. You are the captain of your soul. Get up strong and be unconquerable. Awesome.